supernatural is something that isn't supposed to happen, does it? AM 1420, WBSM presents Spooky South Ghost with your hosts, Tim Weisberg and Matt Costa. Welcome to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here. Matt Costa, the silent assassin, is here as well, as well as science advisor Matt Moniz. And uh, we are here tonight to talk to you for two full hours here at our regular time slot. Great to be back in the 10 p.m. time slot. Hopefully we can stay here for a while. We'll see what happens with college football and NFL football as the season winds on. But remember, if you ever don't hear us here on WBSM, you can always check back and see if you missed us on SpookySouthCoast.com. But we have podcasts available as well. But we have a great show lined up for you tonight. I'm very excited about this. This is we're going to get a chance to talk to somebody who was pretty influential uh, in in my studies um, when I first started researching the Kennedy assassination. When I was uh, in college, I had the the benefit of studying under the late Philip Melanson at the Univers- University of Massachusetts at Dartmouth, and uh, he of course ran the Robert Kennedy archives there. Uh, but for some reason, I was always drawn to the to the JFK assassination. And, of course, Dr. Melanson said one book you have to read is Crossfire by Jim Mars. And when I read it, it just blew my mind. And then I saw the JFK film, which I, I hadn't seen until I read the book, and just opened my mind up to the kind of things that can go on that we're not aware of. And all of Jim Mars' books uh, follow that type of format. It's It's things that... You know, you wouldn't have been aware of had he not gone through the process of uh, investigating it and and uh, figuring it all out. He uh, he earned a Bachelor of Arts degree in journalism from the University of North Texas and attended graduate school at Texas Tech in Lubbock. He worked for several Texas newspapers, and uh, since 1976, he's taught a course on the assassination of President John F. Kennedy at the University of Texas at Arlington. And his book Crossfire was published a critical acclaim and reached the New York Times paperback nonfiction bestseller list in February of 1992. It also became basis for the film JFK, as we said. He was chief consultant for both the film screenplay and production. And of course, his book Alien Agenda is still one of the most foremost recognized books in the ufology field. I mean, Matt Moniz, uh, you must every, everybody uh, you know I've must have it. a copy of Alien oh. Agenda. And of course, the, the later books uh, Rule by Secrecy and The Terror Conspiracy. Uh, about the 9-11 attacks. We'll talk to him about all of that as well. But his new book is called Psy Spies, The True Story of America's Psychic Warfare Program. It's all about remote viewing and how the U.S. government and the U.S. military utilize that to their advantage. So we'll talk to him about that as well as the JFK assassination as well. We are so proud and honored to have Jim Mars with us here tonight. It's my pleasure to be with you and uh, howdy to you and to the two Mats. And we've been talking about this for weeks now, Jim. We, we've been so excited to have the opportunity to talk to you because, you know, we did a whole entire show, Matt Moniz and myself, last year at this time when we reached the anniversary of John F. Kennedy's assassination where we kind of just riffed what we remembered from our studies um, just because we, we, we had trouble contacting our guests. We were trying to line up Dr. Melanson. Uh, we didn't realize at the time that he was very ill and, and near death. So we kind of just winged it ourselves, and then we realized afterwards, boy, we just basically quoted Crossfire. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, a, it's a shame we lost Philip Mellison. He, uh, he he was a very excellent researcher. And uh, if, it, if it wasn't for him, 
there might not even be a spooky South Coast today because he really started getting me asking the questions and, and reading the authors that make a difference. And, of course, your work is uh, right at the forefront of that. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Why don't we just start with the bottom line for uh, all your listeners. Uh, basically, the Kennedy assassination, I mean, you can, you can lose your life to that, okay? <laughs> if you start delving into it and staying up late and cutting uh, classes and cutting away from your job, you know, you can wreck your life trying to study the Kennedy assassination. But what it boils down to is pretty much the same thing as the issue of the Roswell crash of 1947, you know. Uh, on the one hand, if you want to put your faith and confidence and trust in the federal government of the United States, you can, and they tell you it was just one lone nut assassin. But then on the other hand, there's been dozen, hundreds of books, periodicals written, DVDs, movies, including Oliver Stone, that tell us something quite different happened. So it's really just kind of a matter of faith. Um, I don't think anyone can say with any certainty that, you know, so-and-so killed Kennedy or so-and-so didn't kill Kennedy. Uh, you just have to do the research until you reach some sort of an acknowledgement within your own mind. Well, you know, here we are. We're 44 years removed from November 22nd, 1963. And you would think in this amount of time that you would be able to, you know, find more answers and, and narrow down what went on. And instead, it's been the opposite. There's, the focus has just increased, and there's been more possibilities, more names have come up. Uh, right up uh, to e, e. Howard Hunt recently, uh, it just keeps. It's a story that just keeps expanding. And I think as more key figures, you know, want to get things off their chest before their time is up, we're gonna. The, the situation yeah. is just gonna keep expanding. Yeah, more and more keeps coming out, and therein lies the clue. Okay. Um, Hey, guys, do you remember Leon Kalzov? No. No, nobody else does. <laughs> he was the assassin of President McKinley in 1909. And, and the reason nobody remembers him is because they gave that one a real investigation. And it turned out he really was a disgruntled office seeker and a, a radical, and uh, he was a lone nut, okay? So we all forgot about him. Today, there's hardly anybody in the world that doesn't know the name Lee Harvey Oswald. And that's because this case, probably the greatest murder mystery, certainly in our time, is still not solved. And the reason it's not solved is because there are still files within the U.S. government, within the Central Intelligence Agency, that even, even under court order, they're refusing to release, claiming national security. Well, you know, I find it very hard to believe what could have happened 44 years ago that is going to really, truly impinge on our national security today. This is nothing less than just cover-up, and it's been cover-up since the day one. Uh, there is an ongoing pattern that can be proven and demonstrable at the level of the federal government of the United States in the case of the assassination of President Kennedy that involves suppression of evidence, destruction of evidence, fabrication of evidence, alteration of evidence, and intimidation of witnesses. Now, under our legal system, if any of us did that in connection with a crime, uh, we're liable for prosecution and jail time. Sure. And yet the federal government has done this demonstrably through the years, and yet everybody still scratches their head, and still a lot of people are still going, gee, I wonder if there was a conspiracy. Well, you know, it's funny. You mentioned, you know, reasons of national security to keep these files secret. But if it was one lone nut, as, as they want us to believe, 
you know, how could that impinge on national security even then? Exactly. If, if it was exactly. just one crazy if it was guy, just one lone nut, then what you have essentially is an accident of history. You know, is the guy having to be at the right place at the right time or the wrong place? However you want to look at it, and it was just kind of a fluke. So, how could that require all of this national security uh, embargo on information? It's it's totally inconsistent. Doesn't doesn't work. And uh, of course, what we now know is that there were so many other things going on. Well, I mean, if we ignore all the other evidence that's come to light about the fact that there was a conspiracy in place, and you know, and we'll get into all of that, but if it was just one person who did act alone, what they're also probably covering up is the fact that they essentially, the government, the military, created who this person was. They created this Lee Harvey Oswald, um, who became the lone nut that that's they're trying exactly to That's exactly right, and that's exactly what his own mother said beginning the weekend of the assassination. She said, my son works for the United States government. And now it's pretty much beyond question. He had a 201 file, an employment file with the CIA. He had massive files both in the CIA and in military intelligence. Uh, he was in the Marines. He had a uh, he had top secret security clearance because he worked with U-2 flights while he was a radar operator in Japan. Uh, he uh, supposedly defected to Russia, except when you look closely, you find out that technically he never defected because he went in on a Saturday said he was going to defect, and not only that, but told people in the U.S. Embassy that he was going to give military secrets to the Soviets. And yet, uh, less than a year later, when he decides, I want to come back to the United States, he not only was quickly allowed back in with a Russian wife, but actually given money by the U.S. government. Uh, I could go on and on. He had a spy camera, a little tiny miniature Minox camera that carried a five-digit serial number. Uh, a check with Minox Corporation showed that uh, the only commercially available cameras like that in the United States carried a six-digit serial number. So, in other words, uh, this was a spy camera that obviously been issued to him by some agency or some country. Okay, he mentioned microdots to uh, an employee while he was working for Jagger Style Choval in Dallas, uh, which had carried a lot of secret government contracts. Uh, the guy was 24 years old and yet in the year before the assassination he had been in contact with more than with nine fbi agents how many fbi agents have you guys come into contact with no uh, comment. it's amazing i mean it's just amazing and it's all there and yet people do not want to stop and look at it or think about it they want somebody to tell them what happened and of course the government's not going to tell you what happened well he's a Oswald is kind of a, a polarizing figure to a lot of people because he wasn't, in, I mean, by all accounts, he wasn't an overly intelligent man. Oh, oh, au contraire. But, he was uh, a very intelligent man. All you have to do is listen to the uh, radio tapes of his interview down in New Orleans, and he's talking about uh, the differences between Marxism and Leninism and communism and and uh, the, he was quoting statistics on production uh, in Central and South American countries. The guy did not have a much of a formal education, but he obviously was quite bright. But that's the Oswald that the government doesn't want us to know about. I oh, mean, of course not. They're, no, they're trying no, to make no, us think. According to them, he was some kind of just a you know down and out malcontent. 
and, but if that's being the case, they're kind of shooting their own argument in the foot because, you know, you're essentially saying this guy who you're perpetrating is having, you know, a, a less than stellar education and can barely get out of his own way is masterminding the assassination of the leader of the free world right under your nose. That's true. Plus, in the Warren report uh, themselves, they published the information that uh, he spoke Russian so well that people in the Russian immigrant community in Dallas thought he was a native of Russia. And, and uh, officially, he never had any lessons. Supposedly, he taught himself Russian out of a book and maybe a record. Uh, as one who was in military intelligence and who was slated to go for language study, I can tell you that that's just that's not possible. Well, and one of the other things, too, wasn't he receiving copies of the Russian newspaper uh, here in the United States before he even left the country? Yes, I believe that's true. And, of course, you know, he was speaking Russian before he got out of the Marine Corps. In fact, uh, uh, there was a kind of a the story about some of his fellow Marines calling him Oswalovich because they were apparently thought he was a, a, a pro-communist or a communist. And you have to understand, because I was, I was alive back at that time. I was going, uh, and I want to tell you something. If you were in the military, particularly the Marines, and you were saying anything good about communism, uh, that would earn you a trip to the shower, and it'd beat the crap out of you, okay? And if not, your superiors would turn you in as a security risk. And as a matter of fact, there is a documented instance of one of uh, Oswald's superiors going to his superior officer and saying, this guy Oswald is receiving Russian literature and talking positively about Russia. And instead of the his superior saying, well, haul that guy in and let's see what's happening, he was told, it's okay, don't worry about it, and told him, told to forget about it. Now, if that doesn't tell you that he was operating on behalf of the U.S. government, then I don't know what would. Well, I mean, what about the theory, uh, and I think it was Richard uh, Popkin put out the book, Second Oswald. What about the theory that there was two Oswalds? Is that a possibility? Has that been discounted? Well, I, uh, some years ago, I worked with a fellow named John Armstrong out of Oklahoma, and he, uh, had, he had some money, thanks to oil and property, and he took it upon himself to track that. And there's now a book out called Lee and Harvey. Uh, it's pretty hard to come by, and it's pretty expensive because it was self-published. But it it absolutely leaves no question whatsoever that there was a substitute for the real Lee Harvey Oswald. And apparently what happened, guys, is that when Oswald went into the Marines, apparently U.S. intelligence had a young guy who was the son of... Uh, anti-communist immigrants probably from the Baltic region because the Oswald in Russia everyone said he had a Baltic accent okay and of course the real Lee Harvey Oswald grew up, was born in New Orleans grew up in Texas how is he going to have a Baltic accent mm -hmm. but anyway so they wanted to get this fellow with the Baltic access into Russia but they couldn't do it using his name because then the Soviets would figure out that he came from this family. They know he's anti-communist, and they know he's a spy. So they had to find somebody they could substitute uh, him for, and that was Lee Harvey Oswald. Probably with Lee Harvey Oswald's permission and uh, and help, because Oswald had been recruited into military intelligence, naval intelligence, and then probably passed on to the CIA. So what happened was is that about the time he was to get out of the Marines, they pulled a switch, and they put Harvey in for Lee, 
uh, and Lee went home and saw his mother and said, I'm going to Russia, but it was Harvey that got on the boat and went to Russia. And, but then that was the only Oswald that Marina ever met, and uh, he was the one that came back from Russia. And then from that point on, they tracked him fairly thoroughly up until uh, he came to public attention uh, on that weekend in November of 1963. So is it, and is Alec Hadell just an alias that he used, or is it possible that that could be another person that's involved in this? Well, I had a military intelligence source uh, years ago who told me that at one particular time there was many as six Lee Harvey Oswalds running around. So, uh, and at that time I thought, what's he talking about? But now I really understand uh, what he was saying. I don't know. Uh, I, I tend to think the Alex James Hydell identity was simply a phony ID, a fake uh, identity. But uh, I think they were playing all kinds of intelligence games at that time, and it, it's possible that, that actually that, that might have been some other person. But, uh, you know, that's an interesting point right there. When Oswald was arrested in Dallas less than an hour after the uh, assassination in the Texas theater in the south part of the city, uh, and the cops got him, and, they, and he was being uncooperative. He wouldn't give him his name or anything, so they opened his wallet, and they found Lee Harvey Oswald, and then they found a draft card to Alex James Hydell, and they were saying, okay, which one of these are you? And Oswald, as I said, was being uncooperative. He said, ah, you're the cops. Figure it out. Okay? At that very same time, less than an hour after the assassination, when Oswald had just been taken into custody and the authorities in Dallas weren't even sure of his identity, we know from FBI documents released in 1977 that Jagger Hoover was on the phone to Robert Kennedy, who was the attorney general, and he said, we have our man in Dallas. He's Lee Harvey Oswald. He's defected to Russia. He's a mean-spirited individual in the category of a nut. So with, when the Dallas police weren't even sure they, who they had in custody, J. Edgar Hoover already was saying it was Lee Harvey Oswald and that he was a lone nut. Now, that's circumstances, and circumstances don't lie. And I think that points us to... Uh, the fact that Oswald was telling the truth when he shouted to reporters, I didn't shoot anybody, I'm just a patsy. And it's interesting because he didn't say, I'm innocent. <laughs> he said, I didn't do it. He said, I'm a patsy, which implies that they had set him up to take the blame. And I was I was listening to, uh, to Coast to Coast the other night, and I, I forget the gentleman that they had on, but he did ask the question, how come nobody, none of the media said, you know, patsy for what? Nobody questioned it when he made that statement. They just kind of let it go because they assumed that he was just saying that to, you know, try and get himself out of trouble. Well, right. But you know what? Uh, I was a police reporter for years, and I've been right on the scene when they've arrested a lot of people, murderers included. And I've kept up, and I've seen my uh, share of mystery, murder mysteries and, uh, and police shows and everything else. And I have very rarely ever heard somebody shout, I'm a patsy. Yeah. I've heard, they all say, I'm innocent. I didn't do it, mm -hmm. you know, or whatever. But very rarely, only Oswald, well, I'm not going to say only Oswald, but that was one of the few times that somebody accused of a monstrous crime says, I'm a patsy. 
Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna throw out the phone numbers in case anybody wants to call in with any questions. That would be great. By the way, Tim, when Oswald shouted out, "I'm just Apache," that was to newsmen. They had cameras, sound on film going, and in later years, once they came up with voice stress analysis, which can detect the amount of stress in a person's voice and is 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 as admissible in court as a lie detector. Uh, showed there was no stress in his voice, which means, uh, according to the voice stress analysis, when Oswald said, I didn't kill anybody, I'm just a patsy, he was telling the truth. That's, and as we've seen, you know, with a lot of the uh, the audio evidence involved in the case, you know, we, we found years later that we've been able to analyze stuff that couldn't be done on the scene then, that we didn't have the technology, and more and more of it's starting to prove, you know, exactly what what you're talking about. That's correct. That's kind of like the badge man photograph. Nobody thought at the time that the Polaroid snapshots made by Mary Mormon would reveal anything on the grassy knoll, and yet with no particular um, computer trickery or work or anything else, just simple blow-up, there is obviously the figure of someone uh, behind the stockade fence on the grassy knoll in the classic rifle-firing position with a... Uh, a little white blast right in front of him, either muzzle blast or perhaps still some smoke. This is what has become known as the badge man. So that's another point. We have a photograph of a gunman on the knoll. We have all of the closest witnesses around the grassy knoll saying that the shots came from the knoll. We have acoustical studies through the House Select Committee on Assassinations, which are still controversial. They're still arguing about them, but they say there was at least one shot from behind the knoll, and I'm here to tell you, if this was any other case other than the Kennedy assassination, and you had witnesses, a photograph, and and audio uh, acoustical study showing that a shot came from behind a fence, if we tried to say there was nobody behind the fence, we'd be the idiots and the cranks. <laughs> <laughs> and wasn't there also a, a recording done from a motorcycle uh, police officer where well, they... That's, that's the acoustical study that I was talking mm -hmm. about. Uh, one of the police microphones in Dealey Plaza was stuck on, and that's another thing that they've glossed over. They just actually, they they know it's there that that starting two minutes before the shots were fired and lasting eight minutes after the shots were fired, that somebody opened their microphone or it got jammed open, and what it did was anybody familiar with CB radio it, radio it stepped on the signal on that channel and prevented the law enforcement people from uh, ma making an immediate response to the assassination. And I find that highly suspicious right there. Why, why should this 10-minute uh, uh, over-transmission take place right at the time of the assassination? little too convenient, as they say. Oh, yeah. There's, there's all kinds of things that were just a little too convenient. The thing that's making uh, that's pretty interesting to me, I'm not sure I'm, sure I'm going to say that this actually solves or proves anything, but the thing that's really making its way around on the Internet right now, particularly on YouTube, is the uh, film clips of Kennedy's limousine leaving uh, Love Field and the two Secret Service agents who were supposed to be riding on the back of his car where they had a footrest and a hand handhold they get ordered back <laughs> and they come walking back throwing their arms up shrugging their shoulders like what what why are we getting called back 
And uh, obviously he was stripped of some very critical protection at that point because if those two men had been riding on the right and left rear of his car, it would have been very difficult to get a shot from above and behind into the president. Well, if you'd like to call in with any questions uh, for Jim Mars, you can call in at 508-996-0500 or 508-291-0500. Why don't we uh, take a break right now, Jim? And then when we, when we come back on the other side, I'd like to take uh, take things from Oswald going to Russia and then the timeline from when he came back into the assassination. All right, well, we will be right back with more with Jim Mars here on Spooky South Coast. If you're even good, wear anyone at all. Here is a special bulletin from Dallas, Texas. Three shots were fired at... President Kennedy's motorcade today in downtown Dallas, Texas. Anybody here seen my old friend John? Can you tell me where he's gone? They were riding in open automobiles and the shots were fired. The president, his limp body carried in the arms of his wife Jacqueline, was rushed to Parkin Hospital. Even I found that to be in bad taste. From the studios of AM 1420 WBSM into the night and beyond. Here's more of Spooky South Coast. You're going to hell, Mac. I just say no. <laughs> I was headed there anyway. Okay. But uh, yes, we are talking about the JFK assassination right now with our guest, author and investigative journalist Jim Mars. And coming up later on in the program, we'll talk about his new book, Psy Spies, about the remote viewing program uh, that led to psychic warfare. It, it, reading that book, I was just amazed. Uh, Matt Moniz, you've told me before about remote viewing, and I never really bought into it. But after reading this book, I'm, I'm convinced. Told you so. And, and I want to try it. But we'll talk about that later on with Jim. We're, right now, we are talking about the JFK assassination. And if you'd like to call in with any questions you might have, any theories... You know, so much information has been presented in the media through the film JFK. I remember the episode of Quantum Leap where they talked about it, which was really, you know, well-researched. Um, you know, there's been so many different media presentations of what went on, different specials over the years, that it, it might all get confusing for you. And Jim's a, a perfect source to call in and, and question some of the information that's been out there. So give us a call, 508-996-0500. 508 now, uh, mentioning that Quantum Leap episode, Jim, did you ever see that that version of the show that that episode? Uh, that's certainly not fresh in my memory. <laughs> it's it's definitely uh, when I watched it, and I had probably just finished reading Crossfire for the first time when it came out. Uh, it was shortly after the film JFK came out. I was amazed at just how much dedication they put into you know getting the facts out there, and then I realized it's because the producer of the show actually knew Oswald in the military. So they had been acquaintances, but he refuses to talk about, you know, anything that he knew about the guy back then. Wonder why. <laughs> I mean, well, you know, why would he hesitate to tell us about some lone nut he happened to know? Exactly, exactly. And I, I've, I've been actually been trying to get Donald Belsario to come on the show because, you know, he was still producing JAG and uh, some other shows that are out there now, so I thought maybe he'd be accessible, but he doesn't really seem to want to talk about it. So, well, maybe uh, maybe that's why he hadn't come on. Maybe he wants to keep producing <laughs> exactly successful programs. Exactly. Well, uh, but following Oswald's uh, transition over into Russia, now when when he went to the Soviet Union, 
if I'm correct, wasn't he given you know a, a plush factory job and a nice apartment and kind of afforded more of the luxuries of society than the common people of a communist society would get? Yes, that's absolutely correct. In fact, he was allowed to join a gun club uh, where they go out hunting, okay, which is really amazing because uh, certainly at that time and through most of the time of communist Russia, the average guy could not own a gun. Uh, so they gave Oswald a gun, and, and that's interesting, too, because some of the people who were part of this gun club said that uh, <laughs> they remember when they would go out rabbit hunting, somebody else would have to shoot the rabbit because Oswald couldn't hit anything. <laughs> So he's over there, he's kind of, you know, treated like royalty during his time there. That's right. He himself in his diary says he was living big. And then he's allowed to just waltz right back into the United States, and they, they're not concerned at all about, you know, either what he might have told them, because, you know, supposedly on the record he didn't know anything. Right. But they're not concerned about what he might have said, and they're not concerned about what he might be doing coming back. Well, all that's just a cover story. Uh <laughs> He was mixed up. He had all the earmarks of intelligence all over him before and during and after his trip to Russia. In fact, there's some interesting speculation as to what his mission to Russia may have been. And uh, you'll have to put it into the context of the times. And you find that uh, Khrushchev made a trip to the United States in the late 50s and was toured around. He went to Disneyland and was pretty impressed with what he saw. And so he and uh, President Eisenhower began to actually talk seriously about ending the Cold War, which, of course, would not have sat well with the militarists on both sides. And so all of a sudden, Lee Harvey Oswald, who's a radar operator uh, handling the U-2 spy plane, goes to Russia. Russia had the ability to shoot down a U-2, but they did not have the ability to determine exactly what height those uh, planes were flying at because they were flying at uh, tens of thousands of feet more than uh, conventional aircraft. And yet, uh, once Oswald got over there, this radar operator for the U-2, they suddenly had the altitude and were able to shoot down Francis Gary Powers and uh, cancel the summit talks and perpetuate the Cold War. So, yeah, it's always been a question as to whether or not he was over there because the Russians wanted to know what he knew or if he was over there to give, you know, false information. Either way, they end up shooting down Francis Gary Powers. And That's right. Well, the fact their that target. the information must have been correct since they were able to shoot down the plane tells me that perhaps the scenario was some sort of a, uh intelligence swap between top military brass in the United States and top military brass in the Soviet Union because it was in their interest to continue the Cold War. Absolutely. And when he comes back here and he's entering back into United States life, he didn't exactly lay low. No, no. He traveled around, got several interesting jobs, and then, of course, ended up uh, being recommended by a woman with intelligence ties herself, Mrs. Ruth Payne, uh, got him a job at the School Book Depository, which just happened to be right on the route that JFK was going to take through Dallas. But now, before that, he's back in New Orleans, and he's seen, you know, uh, handing out Fair Play for Cuba committee uh, documents and pamphlets. But wh what exactly w were they trying to set up, or what was he trying to accomplish during the, that, that time? Okay, again, this smacks of an intelligence operation. If I was to ask you to go out and and locate some terrorists 
How are you going to do that? Look in the phone book? Put an ad in the paper? No, no, no. What you do is you go out in a big city, you get on a street corner, and you hand out pro-terrorist literature, okay? And eventually somebody come up to you and say, hey, you're all right, man. You know, hey, come, we're having a meeting tonight. You need to come and join us. And that's how you get in contact with these supposed enemies. And it's the oldest intelligence trick in the book. And uh, so while Oswald was in New Orleans handing out all this pro-Castro literature in an effort to bag some pro-Castro agents, and yet when he gets in a fight with a Cuban on the street corner, he gets arrested, he's taken to jail. It's a Saturday, and who does he want to talk to? A lawyer? Somebody from the ACLU? Somebody that's pro-communist? No. He wants to talk to an FBI agent. And they actually, on a Saturday, not a normal business day, they actually sent an FBI agent to the New Orleans jail to interview Oswald. And all you have to do is read this guy's report. And Oswald says, okay, I'm Oswald. I'm in New Orleans. Here's what I'm doing. I came here. I rented a room here. I got an office space here. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. Here's my telephone. He's filing a report. He's giving a report to the FBI on his activities. And now he was in the vicinity of, of Guy Bannister's office, which was kind of like a, a perfect well, storm of, intel- of the intelligence community with the other offices. Central. I mean, what, what, was the, what was the connection with him and Guy Bannister? Well, Guy Bannister was a former FBI agent. He had been in charge of the, uh, of the Chicago office, came to New Orleans, and was a liaison between the FBI and the anti-Castro Cubans and some CIA people. And they all were operating out of his... Uh, he had left the FBI officially, was working as a private investigator, and had an office there on... 544 Camp Street, and uh, interestingly enough, when Oswald began to hand out his pro-Castro literature, uh, some of the first printings of that carried the address 544 Camp Street, the same address as Guy Bannister's office, and they quickly changed that. And then Guy Bannister's secretary uh, said that one day she and her boss Bannister, this arch-anti-communist, this ex-FBI private detective who had contacts with the local police, the military, the anti-Castro Cubans, uh, the mafia, just about everybody. And they're going down the street and they see Oswald handing out some pro-communist literature. And the the secretary got kind of upset and said, oh my goodness, you know, what are we going to do about that? And she said, Guy Bannister told her, don't worry about it, he's with us. So again, we see the telltale marks of uh, doing intelligence work. In fact, in a book called Oswald and the CIA, uh, the military historian uh, John Newman, uh, using CIA internal message traffic that was only made public after 1990, uh, made the absolute firm conclusion that Oswald was being used operationally by the Central Intelligence Agency even before the assassination. So there you go. I got a question for you, Jim. Now, was it not true that he was um, in a relationship with a uh, virologist, and that they were in turn cooking up a uh, little something for Castro? Right. You're talking about Judith Barry Baker. Yes, I am. And uh, I've interviewed her several times, and I want to tell you she's she's got the stuff. Okay, I've actually seen her original pay slips from the Riley Coffee Company 
when she worked there at the same time as Lee Harvey Oswald. And her story is is that she was uh, involved in the uh, operation of a clandestine cancer lab there in New Orleans uh, being run by David Ferry, who was a man connected to both Bannister and Oswald. That's what I was trying to get to. Yeah, and that uh, her job at Riley Coffee Company was to cover for Oswald while he slipped out during the work day and would go over to Ferry's apartment and uh, work in this cancer lab. And, in fact, that's a very interesting story. All that is covered in great detail in a book by Ed Haslam called Dr. Mary's Monkey. And despite the catchy title, it's uh, jam-packed with uh, pictures and information data sources. And that leads us into even more darker areas because have you guys ever considered this? Uh, we all know about uh, all this activity that's going on in New Orleans, and yet no one has ever been able to connect, directly connect, Bannister, Ferry, and all these people, the anti-Castro Cubans in New Orleans, to Dealey Plaza. And yet when the district attorney in New Orleans, Jim Garrison, tried to prosecute the head of the trademark there, Clay Shaw, uh, it is now beyond question that the federal government came down with its full weight to suppress any truthful investigation and to block and to uh, deter his uh, garrison's investigation. And I submit to you that that was perhaps not so much because of what might have been uncovered about the Kennedy assassination, but that what would have been uncovered about this clandestine cancer lab and the fact that they were working feverishly trying to come up with a cure for cancer because one of the leading uh, anti-communists at that time and in New Orleans was Dr. Alton Oxner uh, who uh, had pushed through the Sabine polio vaccine even though it was adulterated with simian immunization virus 40 which over time works on your immunization system. And uh, many people who took the uh, polio vaccine are now coming down with cancer. So they were trying to figure out how to stop it, but then it even takes a darker turn because, according to Judith Baker, uh, in the process of trying to find a cure for cancer, they discovered a cause for cancer. They figured out how they could inoculate people with uh cancer cells and uh, give them cancer which very quickly would would kill them and uh, of course that should make us take a second look at the galloping cancer death of Jack Ruby who in the summer of 1965 uh, was examined by a Dallas doctor and said that he was perfectly healthy and then this Dallas doctor was replaced by some doctor sent by the federal government and just a month or two later, he was sent to Parkland Hospital, and the media said that he had the flu. And then just a few weeks later, they said, no, it's not the flu, it's uh, lung cancer. And by, by uh, January of 1966, he was dead. That is a pretty rapid, uh, rapid incubation period. For Galloping that. cancer. Yeah. Now, And, of course, they've denied for years 
that a person can be injected with cancer, but it's becoming quite obvious that, uh, you know, that is a very real possibility. It's not so much that you inject them with cancers. Uh, if I recall correctly from some of her work, it was the certain types of viruses that you can use that, will intro- that when introduced will cause the cancers to start because the virus is just a strand of RNA that self-replicates. Right. Cer- certain types you can get them to switch other genes on in, in a um, cell and cause, a, in a sense, cancer to affect the cells. See, exactly. I work- I work as an analytical chemist. I invent pharmaceuticals for a living, so this is kind of like within my field. So, so let me ask you then: uh, do, do you believe that it is possible to inject cancer? Uh, well, like I said, it's possible to inject certain types of viruses if you can engineer them appropriately. Which would result in cancer. Correct. They're looking at viruses now uh, to try and cure cancers. Certain right. types to, to switch the genes off. Well, right. n- not to not to get off topic here, but Jim, I don't know if you heard the news uh, this past week about stem cells, about how they've been able to manipulate skin cells, uh, and and essentially create a stem cell out of it. But yeah. the byproduct is it creates cancer. Yeah, so <laughs> it's probably exactly. And by the way, attended to that was the several studies they've done that showed uh, lab animals if they are implanted with one of these microchips, uh, then that tends to create cancers. So, it, I mean, even back then, it might not have been that hard to manipulate something to, to create cancer in Jack Ruby. Exactly. So, all this stuff I'll is... I'll tell you, though, here's, you guys would be interested in this. I talked with a Dallas deputy sheriff who had guarded Jack Ruby and was talking with him about this possibility because Jack Ruby himself, in letters smuggled out of the jail, said that they were injecting him with cancer. Okay, and of course, back then everybody kind of laughed up their sleeve because that was thought to be impossible. But this old deputy sheriff said, "Oh hell, they didn't have to inject him with cancer. Said so they just take him in there for an X-ray and leave him in there with the machine on for a while. <laughs> that would probably do it. Yeah, that would. <laughs> so, all all this stuff is going on in New Orleans. It's it's kind of this big center of whatever is brewing. And, and well, then, it was the center. It was one of the key hubs." to the uh, secret war against Castro. Mm-hmm. And and Oswald leaves there and, and makes his way toward Dallas. And, you know, just because we're running up against the news break in about nine minutes, we'll flash, flash forward to Dallas. Okay, and when he gets to Dallas, he picks up with his leafleting activity. And I talked to a Dallas policeman who went out one time because somebody called in reported that Oswald was out there handing out this pro-Castro literature. And so this cop went out and checked him out. And what he told me was, he said he didn't act like he was all that enthusiastic about it. See, he'd just show up, he'd start handing out leaflets, everybody grab one, look at his watch, and then leave. It was like he was just going through the motions. It wasn't like he was some dedicated person really trying to uh, sell somebody on anything. Just making the appearance so that you know yeah. people can cooperate that he was there. Yeah, just so he'd go down on a report that he was handing out communist literature. And now, wasn't he involved in, a, in another assassination prior to the Kennedy assassination? Well, they claimed that he took a shot at General Walker there in Dallas uh, in the spring of uh, 1963. The problem there, the big problem is that I knew General Walker. In fact, I interviewed him quite extensively. And he told me in no uncertain terms that whoever shot at him, uh, that the slug they dug out of the wall was a thirty out 6 and Oswald was never known to have owned a 30 out 6 so 
that to me that tends to exonerate him. Well, and then of, uh, of course he orders ma- the mail order Manlicker Carcano. That which is, is in- which is really strange because at that time, again, you're talking about in Texas when I was like I was like 21 years old. Okay, so I was, I was like a grown man. If you wanted to buy a rifle in Texas at that time, you could go into any pawn shop, you could go into any gun show, buy one, pay cash, walk out, and nobody would know who you were or have any way of tracing you to that weapon. Why would Oswald, particularly if he's planning on shooting at public figures like General Walker or the President of the United States, why in the world would he order a, a rifle through the mail traceable to his own post office box. That makes no sense at all. Unless you're creating a paper trail. Yes, exactly. Unless you're being set up and following orders and being set up as a passy. And so now we get to, we'll even flash forward to Dealey Plaza on, on November 22nd. And he's in the school book depository. He's working in that building. He has access to that building. Right. Uh, they find this sniper's nest up there on the sixth floor. And right. All this evidence uh, that they're presenting to us uh, in the Warren Commission uh, basically boils down to one magic bullet. And right. your, your thoughts on the magic bullet? Well, it is definitely a magic bullet because <laughs> basically what we're told that uh, Oswald was able to squeeze off three shots in about six seconds, which is just barely enough time to pull the trigger and cock the bolt on a bolt-action rifle, uh, does not take into account the regaining your sight picture, particularly if you're looking through a telescopic sight, and, and yet he squeezed off three shots at a target 265 feet away from him in a car moving laterally downhill and away from him with a tree intervening in the line of sight. What miraculous shooting. Now, initially, the FBI said on the Monday following assassination, their scenario was that it was just Oswald, and his first bullet struck Kennedy in the back, his second bullet passed through Governor Connolly, causing his wounds, and the third shot hit Kennedy in the right-hand side of the head, killing him, which is a plausible scenario. Now, what happened was is that there was a man named James Tagg, uh, who I've met on several different occasions, who was standing down on the uh, near the uh, underpass, the viaduct, on the curb of Main Street when a bullet hit the curb at his feet, threw up bits of metal or concrete and nicked him on the cheek. And uh, he ended up being part of the official reports of that day because a policeman and a deputy sheriff both said that this bystander had been wounded. Uh, Tag then tried to contact the Warren Commission, sent him letters, and he got no reply. They were going to ignore him. But then... In the middle of the spring of 1964, a Dallas assistant district attorney, a U.S. attorney, sent a letter to the Warren Commission along with a photograph taken out of one of the Dallas newspapers of this bullet strike on the curb and says, what about this one? Well, all of a sudden, instead of having just some citizens claiming something, they've got a U.S. attorney, so they had to pay attention to this. And sure enough, they had to, so now they've got to explain a fourth shot. Well, there can't be a fourth shot and have one assassin. So they came up with their single bullet theory, more aptly described as the magic bullet theory, which was the first shot passed through Kennedy's neck, didn't hit any bone, kept going, hit Connolly near the right armpit, shattered his fifth rib, came out near his right nipple, 
somehow swerved around and hit his right wrist from the top side, shattered that wrist bone, one of the densest bone in your body, and then swerved off over to the left and ended up in his left thigh. And uh, that was the magic bullet. And then the second bullet missed and uh, hit the street and the wounded tag, and the third shot hit Kennedy in the head. And that's been the official version uh, all along, up until the time, of course, of Gerald Posner's book, uh, where he tries to defend the Warren Commission. But by that time, the single bullet theory had gotten so discredited that he tried to change up the sequence. And what Posner said was that the first bullet hit a a tree twig and was deflected, and that was the one that hit down near Main Street and Nick Tague, and that the second bullet went was the magic bullet that went through Kennedy and Connolly, and third bullet hit Kennedy in the head. Now, the problem with that is, is that Connolly, up until the time of his death, said he heard a shot, and that uh, he was turning to try to get a look at Kennedy when he was hit, and he did not hear that shot, which is true because a, a bullet travels faster than the speed of sound, and you're hit before the sound reaches you. So by all of the descriptions, uh, there was a shot fired that did not before Conley was hit, so that destroyed the Warren Commission, and that's what prompted Posner to try to argue that it hit a tree branch. But I ask you, how could anybody know if a bullet hit a twig and was deflected? How can anybody know that? You couldn't know that. True. So it's just it's just been one conspiracy theory after another. <laughs> well, it's it, that's something I, I definitely want to talk to you a little bit about. I know that I said that we would take a break for the week and weird, but I'm thinking maybe after the CBS News we could come back and talk more about the Kennedy assassination. Okay, whatever. Right. There's there's so much more to cover, and I, we definitely will get into talking about sci spies and remote viewing as well later on. I mean, this is just... Well, it'd be a perfect segue, because when we get to Sasquatch, I participated in a remote viewing session on the Kennedy assassination. Well, that's something I definitely want to hear about. (laughs) All right, so what we'll do is we'll take our break for the CBS News, and then when we come back, we will talk more with Jim. Uh, It's just fascinating stuff, and I would hate to have to, you know, cut topics short because we want to talk about, you know, the weak and weird, and then leave people hanging with so much of this information that we have the... Jim Mars source here available for us, you know, so we will definitely uh, do that and we will take your calls at 508 996 0500, 508 And uh, that way, there, if you have any questions, any theories, anything that you want to share with Jim, you can do so. Uh, again, about a six minute break for the news, and when we come back more on the Kennedy assassination, and then we'll talk about Psy Spies. This true story of America's psychic warfare program. Back with more with Jim Mars in just a few minutes. Lost civilizations, extraterrestrials, myths and monsters, missing persons, magic and witchcraft, unexplained phenomena. For 58 years, Fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate is a factual magazine containing articles by experts in all walks of life and by others just like you who have had something dynamic, significant, and truthful to say. Keep up with the latest on all aspects of the paranormal. Angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. To subscribe, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at fatemag.com. 
That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. Spooky South Coast is back. It's Saturday night. I have no date. A two-liter bottle of Shasta and my all-rush mixtape. Let's rock. Welcome back, hour number two of Spooky South Coast, and what a Spooky South Coast it's been so far. We are honored to have as our guest tonight, Jim Mars. You can check out his website at jimmars.com, that's uh, Mars with two R's, and we have it linked up on the blog at spookysouthcoast.com, and before we get back into the discussion about the JFK assassination, and a little bit later on about remote viewing, I just want to let everybody know about one thing. Uh, We're going to skip the week in weird this week, because we have so much to cover uh, in tonight's topics, but... One story that I was going to read for it, uh, I read the release on ghostvillage.com, and that's that paranormal researchers have created a new device. The Association for the Study of Unexplained Phenomena, or ASUP Incorporated, is a nonprofit research and educational corporation dealing with the paranormal and dedicated to the study of theories concerning the survival of the human conscience after death. Well, they have uh, completed work on a prototype device similar to what we call Frank's Box, or is also known as the Telephone of the Dead. And uh, Frank Sumption has actually put his stamp of approval on their work that they're doing. They're calling it the Mini Box. They have a U.S. patent pending. And it's actually available for view and for purchase on their website. And uh, their website is paranormalsystems.com. It's uh, put together by Rick Moran is the gentleman uh, who leads the ASUP. But the, uh, the engineer that worked on the Mini Box, uh, his name is uh, Ron, Ron Rickett. But uh, they tried it out at the Stanley Hotel last week. Uh, as part of the outing there, and we're going to talk to some people over the course of the week and, and see if we can get them to, to share with us what they thought of it. Uh, and, of course, I talked to Rick at length tonight about it. He told me all about the way that they're producing it, how it's coming about. They say that it works better than Frank's box because they've eliminated a lot of that background noise, a lot of that extra noise created by the echo chamber. They've really narrowed it down so you just get the clear, concise statements coming through the box. So we'll talk to them about that. Rick uh, said that he will probably join us next week to discuss this, and I'm going to try, and I'm not promising anything, but I'm going to ask Frank, I'm going to beg Frank to please come on with us and at least talk to us a little bit about this because um, according to what Rick Moran said, Frank said that they've actually taken what he created and made it better. So we want to let people know about that, if that's going to be a tool that's available to them in the research field. ParanormalSystems.com. If you want to find out more about it, they're taking pre-orders. They have a video there showing how it works. Matt Moniz, I've downloaded the video to my computer. I'll show it to you after the show. You can let me know what you think. Sure. But um, definitely check that out, and hopefully we will talk to Rick and hopefully Frank as well next week. But for now, let's just get right back into the discussion with Jim Mars. If you'd like to join in, share any questions, any thoughts, you know, maybe there's some stuff that you're not sure about, some, some things that you've heard of uh, in the media, Some so many specials the last few years, either proving that there was a conspiracy or trying to disprove that there's a conspiracy 
you know, uh, Peter Jennings put put on that special a few years ago, and and I was astounded by the facts that came out in that case until Matt Moniz filled me in on Peter Jennings and, and the clandestine groups he was involved in. <laughs> so uh, we'll talk about all that and more with Jim, but if you'd like to give us a call, 508-996-0500, 508-291-0500, and uh, we'll get right back into it with Jim. I, I don't know if you – I'm sure uh, – I'm sure that you, when you watched that special, Jim, you were probably infuriated with some of the stuff that was being presented. <laughs> I've been infuriated with just about everything they've presented in the corporate mainstream media. It's either cherry-picking information or uh, leaving out significant information or just downright lies. It, it's funny because it takes some of the, I don't know, some of this attempt to prove that there was no conspiracy, some of this you know, agenda-driven Peter Jennings type specials to really open this back up in the public's mind and it, it works in the opposite they'll put the special out to say here's our definitive proof that Lee Harvey Oswald did it and he acted alone and instead all it does is it just opens this all up again to people questioning what they're presenting well that's true and and there may be a purpose to that um, you see you have to understand that there's never when you talk about a cover-up you usually think in terms of that there's no evidence or that the evidence has been hidden away in this case, the evidence has been there all along, and they knew that, and they can't keep it hidden up, hidden forever. So what they do is the cover-up is through obfuscation, okay? They just throw out so many different theories and so many contradictory statements that it just keeps it confused, and thereby nobody ever demands that justice be done. And uh, it's worked for 44 years, and I'm seeing that. Uh, going on right now today, you have Vincent Bugalosi who just published a 1,600-page book uh, called Reclaiming History, which more appropriately should have been titled Reclaiming the Warren Commission. And he, because he comes to the same conclusion as the Warren Commission, Oswald did it alone, and he does it by the same method that the Warren Commission did, which is cherry-picking their information, uh, ignoring anything that would tend to exonerate Oswald, and by filling up such a huge tome that nobody really is going to read it, the whole purpose is to simply garner headlines and sound bites across the nation so that another whole generation will scratch their head and go, gee, it's controversial, I guess we'll never know. Like another Condon report. Yes, exactly, or the 9-11 commission omission report. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Same thing. Well, it's, not a, it's not a question of covering up the facts, it's just a a question of dragging so many red herrings across the trail that the, the keeping the waters just muddy throws up their hands and says, "Oh, I give up. I don't know what's going on." Yeah, keeping the waters muddy. Right. Well, uh, in 2003, ABC News, uh, when they put out that special, they conducted a, a poll, and over 70 percent of Americans said they suspected a plot involved in, in Kennedy's assassination. That's but, right. I think that number probably now is probably pushing towards 90 percent. And that's astounding, guys, because this means that the vast majority of those people now realize that there was a conspiracy to kill the President of the United States. But the problem is, that was in 1963, and like today, everybody says, oh, well, so what? Mm, exactly, yeah. My, I mean, but my point that I want to make to people is, I've heard so many people say, well... You know, I, I think that Oswald did it, but I think he had help, but I don't think it was a conspiracy. What people don't realize is as soon as there's more than one person involved, you have a conspiracy. By dictionary definition, you've got a conspiracy. And now you have to ask yourself this question. How come that this conspiracy has gone un, 
recognized by the government for 44 years. And here's another question that I'll put to you. J. Edgar Hoover, Johnson, those military chiefs, those mafia chiefs, those anti-Castro leaders, all the people who might have been involved in an assassination plot to kill Kennedy, they're all dead and gone or long retired. Who has the staying power that could maintain this cover-up for 44 years? Who? CIA. Even goes higher than that. When the CIA was created, it was created by members of the Council on Foreign Relations and Wall Street and people that are connected to Wall Street. And those families, those institutions are still very much in charge of this country. Are we talking the Bilderbergers? Talking about what? The Bilderbergers? Yes, even to the level of the Bilderbergers. For example, Clay Shaw, uh, who was prosecuted, one of the only, uh, the only person ever been prosecuted for the Kennedy assassination, um, was connected through his World Trade Centers to a shadowy group in Italy called Central Mondale Commercial, and under that was a shadowy group uh, filled with uh, European royalty and corporate leaders and, and spooks called Permindex. And uh, in the 1962 edition of Who's Who's in the, in the South Southwest, Clay Shaw listed himself as a director of this Permindex, and yet the, the next year uh, they dropped that reference. So uh, uh, who are these people? It tracks right up to the highest levels of power in the world. Well, we've heard so many theories over the years as to who actually uh, initiated the conspiracy, uh, and we'll just go. We'll just say that there was one. We're not going to say if there was one, but who it was that initiated. Come on, guys, you know there was one. <laughs> I, I, I certainly do. I certainly do. But I mean, I mean, I'll be the first to admit we don't know the precise outlines. We don't know precisely who was involved. And of course, we're getting to your question, which I suppose is, you know, who gave the order? Well, sure. If, that's the simplest way to put it. Well, I, and I'm here to tell you, I doubt seriously if we'll ever know who gave the order. And it may be that uh, there was not even any straightforward order given. I think what happened was is that in the talk during six, late 62 and early 63 on the golf courses and in the club rooms and in the hallways of the Pentagon and the Langley, uh, everybody began to realize that there was a consensus among the most powerful and violent groups in this country, and that includes the anti-Castro Cubans, the Mafia, and, uh, and right on up to Wall Street and the plutocracy that runs this country, that Kennedy was a threat to their uh, bottom line and that he had to go. And once everybody kind of understood that this... Uh, Agreement, you know that this that everybody was kind of in agreement on this. Then at some point, somebody in very high up on the food chain picked up the telephone and called someone and said, "Activate contingency plan 54B," or something to that effect. And from that point on, you're not going to be able to connect the people who were involved with the people who ordered it. But if you want to know for my money, I'll give you a name, and that is General uh, Edward Lansdale. Lansdale, who they made a, wrote a book and had made a whole movie about called The Ugly American, 
was uh, proficient at overthrowing governments all around the world, particularly in Asia, South America. And uh, he was in charge of Operation Mongoose. And Operation Mongoose was the secret war against Castro. And involved in Operation uh, Mongoose was elements of the CIA, the military, the FBI, the mafia. So there they all are. And this is what kept everybody off balance for so many years because all of the researchers would argue amongst themselves you know, the Mafia did it. No, the anti-Castro Cubans did it. No, the military did it. No, you know. And the truth was, yes, all of the above. Because they were all involved in uh, Operation Mongoose, which included assassination plots, which was made public in the 1970s during the time of the Church Committee. And uh, so obviously all they had to do was just turn their hit teams to Dallas. And I've often felt that it's a matter of people are looking at the different colors involved and not really paying attention to the whole painting. Exactly. And I think that they're all kind of blending together to, to form this this uh, this event to, to cause this assassination. And and you said it perfectly there. Um, Operation Mongoose is a perfect example of how these elements could work together. So when people say, gee, I think Lyndon Johnson knew about it. Gee, I think Sam Giancana knew about it. it they all did. They all did. <laughs> That's right. Now, wasn't his cancer research also part of that? But the power has to come even above some of those people, including Lyndon Johnson. Uh, for example, um, it has been well documented that the person, or persons rather, that created the Warren Commission, the late unlamented and totally discredited Warren Commission, was not even Lyndon Johnson. He didn't want an investigation early on. He was talked into it or ordered into it by ranking members of the Council on Foreign Relations. And that is still running the State Department of this country today, and that power is still in place, and that explains why the Kennedy assassination has still not been solved and never will until, uh, uh, until we break this chokehold on the United States government by these secret societies. Well, now, isn't it, uh, is it 2036 that the, all the documents are supposed to be officially released? Well, yes, yeah, yeah, something like that. But now with the Assassination Records Review Board, they've pried out a whole good number. And, and even when 2039 or whenever it is comes, you know, I, I surely no one thinks that we're going to find a thank you note from Lyndon Johnson to Lee Oswald. I mean, you know, it's just it's not going to be there. This is big. This was all done on the QT. It was done in discussions uh, out on a golf course or in a club somewhere. Or, you know, there's not going to be written documents. And you very rarely ever get a photograph of a conspiracy. True. The one thing that always just was a, a smoking gun, pardon the pun, in my eyes, was the fact that, you know, they, they seal these documents so they make sure that every member of the Warren Commission is no longer with us anymore. Before That's right. this then stuff they gets... start dribbling out the truth. And, and that just seems to me like as if we're saying, hey, you know, we, we weren't totally forthcoming in all that we knew, or we didn't uh, investigate it to the fullest extent that we could have, so we're going to just do this to cover our asses. Well, the thing is, nobody wants to go down in history as being a dumbass, right? <laughs> so even Lyndon Johnson, uh, before he died, was, was raising some questions. He said, yeah, you know, he said that Oswald is a very odd fellow, and he says... 
I kind of always thought there was a conspiracy going on. Of course, he never would have said that at the time, and he never would have said that up out in public officially. But yet he wanted to get that on the record so that the future generations would not say, boy, that Lyndon Johnson, he was about as dumb as a post. (laughs) Or actually he was as as guilty as, as could be, too. Right. And you see the same thing going on today. Uh, you've got Lee Hamilton and Thomas Kern, who co-chaired the 9-11 Commission. And at the time, it was like, oh, well, man, we've looked at everything. It was 19 hijackers, and fire brought those buildings down, and that's all there is to it. And then here, just a year or so ago, they both published a book, probably made lots of big bucks off of that. And we suddenly find out that they were stonewalled by the Bush White House. They were not given access to the information that they really needed. They were guided in their conclusions and that they even considered filing perjury charges against officials of the FAA and and NORAD because they couldn't get their stories straight. But hey guys, why didn't you tell us that at the time when tempers were up and passions were hot and maybe we could have done something about it. It, it, It's the same thing with the Kennedy assassination. It's all coming out now because it's 44 years later and most people, uh, you know, they're, they're especially younger people, they're more concerned about getting a date and who's on their iPod than they are about who killed Kennedy. Well, actually, what's on my iPod is a lot of stuff about who might have killed Kennedy. So, uh, oh, <laughs> putting on the, your iPod. There's no excuse for them not to put the uh, connection together, you know. Use the technology to your advantage, kids. That's right. But, Amen, brother. I mean, maybe I'm just, maybe it's just from, you know, I don't know, reading all these materials that I've read, taking the courses that I've taken and studying these. But I can remember actually sitting there on 9-11, watching all this stuff unfold and saying, there's going to be so much more to this story somewhere down the line. That's right. And it's going to be, you know, 1963 all over again. That's right. Well, thank you. You just uh, stole some of my thunder uh, because that's <laughs> what I try to tell people, particularly younger people, which is study the Kennedy assassination. And once you realize how they've obfuscated, covered up, lied, you know, all this stuff and about what, and you can see how the methodology involved, then you can start applying that to more recent things and you begin to come out of the matrix and uh, realize what's really going on you know and somebody when I, I told somebody earlier this week that we were having you on as a guest and that we'd be talking about the kennedy assassination and they said boy aren't you kind of afraid to go on the radio and and put out in a public forum talking about this stuff don't you know what could happen to you and what? my response was if they could kill the president what i mean what, what chance do i have exactly might as but well now, just tell the truth now, would this would this have been the same person who probably would have told you, oh, there's probably not really a conspiracy anyway? I think everybody tells me that, though. I know. But they, now think of the dichotomy of that thinking. Okay? On the one hand, they go, oh, there's really nothing there. It's just, you know, a lot of conspiracy theory. You know, it's just a lot of uh, hoorah. And then, then they'll turn around and look all around and say, aren't you scared to talk about that stuff? I mean, that tells you that they know there's something there. They just don't want to confront it. Well, it was definitely great talking about the Kennedy assassination with you. And, and you did mention, and I, I definitely want to uh, hear this story, you mentioned something about tying in remote viewing with the Kennedy assassination. Right. Well, why don't we take a break, and then when we come back on the other side, we'll talk about remote viewing and your new book, Psy Spies, The True Story of America's Psychic Warfare Program. All right. And uh, maybe, you know, if you, if you want to... Um, Tell us about that experience. Maybe you know we can get some people to call in and and share some of their own experiences with remote viewing if if they've tried it as well. You can do that at five zero eight nine nine six zero five hundred five zero eight two nine one zero five hundred. We will be right back with more here on Spooky South Coast. Remote viewer to commence in three, two, one. 
The agents train to see distant locations using nothing but the mind. They call it remote viewing. I can see for miles and miles. I can see for miles and miles. I can see for miles. Well, I know, I know, I can go, but I like the song. And you can see for miles and miles the process known as remote viewing. And we were talking to author and investigative journalist Jim Mars. Uh, we just talked with him about the Kennedy assassination. Now we're going to talk about his new book, Psy Spies, The True Story of America's Psychic Warfare Program. And this book deals with the process known as remote viewing. And before I ask you about viewing the Kennedy assassination, Jim, I, I want to ask you just if you could explain to our audience what remote viewing is. Right. Got to lay some groundwork here because <clears throat> as someone who was brought up in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, I was always science orientated, right? And uh, if you couldn't hold it in your hand or measure it or look at it under a microscope, it uh, probably didn't exist. And so uh, when I stumbled across the military remote viewing program, uh, I was quite intrigued, and it really kind of brought my journalistic hackles up. Uh, because basically, remote viewing is just a term that they've attached to a psychic phenomena that uh, in the past has been known as clairvoyance. It's the ability to just perceive persons and places and things at a great distance uh, by means other than your normal five senses. And of course, when I first learned about this and the fact that the Army was training these remote viewers to send their mind out all across the planet, and look at enemy submarines and aircraft and stuff like that, I just thought, wait a minute. I was very, very skeptical of all of that. And uh, But I knew I had a good story because, on the one hand, it's, it's either not true, and if it's not, then what a waste of taxpayer money. Uh, or number two, it is true. And if it is true, then wow, this could be an evolutionary leap for mankind. And I'm here to tell you that it's true. Uh, the study of remote viewing has been described uh, as the most severely monitored scientific experiment in history, and I think I'd have to go along with that. There were hundreds of people involved, and they worked on this for a good number of years, and most of the people involved early on were as skeptical about it as I was, but they found through laboratory experimentation that it actually works. Uh, they would send out uh, groups of people with sealed directions and at a certain time they'd open the envelope and they'd go to a certain location and at that same time they would have a remote viewer back in the laboratory and, they, and basically they'd say tell us where these people are and they'd start describing the environment where these people would be and more often than not they were correct and sometimes it was absolutely spooky uh, how correct they were and then they found out that the remote viewers were able to tell them the location even before the outbound researchers opened their envelope, which means that it's even got spookier because that means they were able to peer into the future and find out where they were going to be uh, at a certain time. And so it's a, it's a uh, incredible story. I wrote this all back in the 90s and I had it all set to break what I thought was going to be one of a great scoop for me, but the book got suppressed. All kinds of strange things happened, and they just canceled it for no particular reason. And, uh, of course, I now realize 
The reason was twofold. Number one, they knew the story of remote viewing was going to get out, but they did not want it to come out in a very credible manner. And apparently they thought my book, because I went back and studied the scientific literature and looked at the historical precedents, might have been a little too uh, credible. And the second thing was because every single military remote viewer, although they were never officially assigned to do this, they nevertheless, in their mental wanderings, would come across the reality of UFOs. And that's the biggest, deepest, darkest secret that they're still trying to keep from the public today. So that was what remote viewing was. It was begun as a response to Soviet psychic research um, taking place in the 60s and 70s. And in the halls of the Pentagon, or Langley, the uh, intelligence chief said, well, we don't believe in this rot, but by God, if the commies are doing it, we got to do it. And so uh, we started our own psychic warfare program that uh, went under several code names, Stargate, Center Lane, Grill Flame, Sunstreak, and yet it kept going through four separate administrations uh, over a period of years, funded by millions of taxpayer dollars, so obviously somebody knew they were getting some good out of it. Um, when I began to research this and was in touch with some of the original remote viewers for the U.S. Army, um, I said, well, after a while, I said, well, I want to see an example. Let me see a session. And I, they said, okay. And so one of the very best viewers they had uh, sat down with a monitor, and they began to have a session. And right before we began this, the monitor said, well, you know, what's going to be the target of this uh, session? So I said, well, why don't you just have him look at the Kennedy assassination? And so he said, okay. So he got the viewer down. The viewer started going through the methodology and the protocols that you have to follow to make sure that you're doing the process correctly. Mm-hmm. And the next thing I know, he's drawing kind of this elongated S-shaped thing on his paper. And then the monitor said, now, he said, this is an event. And he said, well, where did this event happen? And he pointed to kind of right in the middle of this S-shape. And I was wondering, what the heck is this? I don't, I don't know. What, what is he talking about? And then all of a sudden he drew a line like the, top, the, the horizontal line of a T across the top of this S. And it suddenly dawned on me that Elm Street, going through D.D. Plaza, does not go in a straight line. It it, it snakes through Dealey Plaza in kind of an S-shaped uh, design. And so then he began to draw people standing on curb with trees behind them and buildings uh, rising above the trees. And he said he was hearing the murmur of the crowd, et cetera, et cetera. And at this point, I knew that he was in Dealey Plaza looking at the assassination. To make a long story short, this viewer who was a patriotic American soldier who always believed Oswald did it all by himself and had never really paid any attention to the assassination literature, just got up and said, i got to take a break. And he went outside, smoked a cigarette, and when he came back in, Montre said, you know what the target is, don't you? And he said, yeah, it's the Kennedy assassination. And uh, he said, well, it, it really made an impact on you, didn't he? He says, yeah, it did. He said, because I'm getting that there were bullets coming from two separate directions, both the front and the back, and that there were at least two shooters. 
indicating so, indicating somebody on the grassy knoll. Yes. So, so that must have they, been. They confirmed to themselves that Kennedy was shot from both behind and from the front in an ambush crossfire, and that there was a conspiracy to kill Kennedy. Now, what's amazing is, and of course, unfortunately, nobody's had the wherewithal to do this, but they were telling me that with enough time, and if they would get other viewers involved and take a a very proper, in-depth study, it's possible that they would be able to uh, psychically, mentally, track the bullets from Kennedy's body back to their source, describe who was doing the shooting, and then even follow the shooters backward in time to where they got paid the money or given their orders, and they could probably uncover the full details of the assassination. But this would require a huge effort of time and energy, and and you'd have to have multiple viewers involved, and uh, to this date, nobody's had the funding to to actually uh, do such a study. And even if you did, it'd still be it'd be hard to convince the general public of that evidence. That that's true. They they'd still say, "Oh well, you know, blah blah blah." So uh, you're absolutely right. And we're even seeing today. I mean, in these days, you know, Major Ed Dames is claiming that he's going to try and you know use remote viewing to locate Osama bin Laden, and and he keeps coming up short. Well, there's a reason for that. Um, I'm not going to get into personalities, but I'm in touch with much better remote viewers than uh, <laughs> Mr. Dames. And uh, one of them contacted people deep within the government and said, give me the word and I will locate Osama bin Laden. And he was told, no, no, don't do that. We don't want that. They don't want Osama bin Laden found because then they'd lose this boogaboo that they hold over our head, keep us fearful and Distracted and, uh, and and able to pull off whatever it is they're trying to pull off. Well, the, the terror conspiracy, to use yeah. another of your book titles. Yeah. Well, I mean, what what did the government want to gain from the remote viewing program? If it was originally, uh, you know, the CIA was trying to keep up with what the Russians were doing, what was the goal once they realized what the potential was of this of this program? Well, once they realized that it was real and it really does work, then they quickly tried to discredit the whole thing. They still downplay it. In fact, if you ask anyone in the government today, do you still have a remote viewing program or a unit somewhere, they're going to say no. And technically, uh, it's my understanding that that's probably true. But what they don't tell you is, is that all, a lot of these military remote viewers, after they left the military, they are now continuing their remote viewing practices, and a lot of them are teaching, and a lot of them are lecturing, and they get uh, subcontracts from the government to go look at various things, and then they report back their findings to the government, and this gives the government plausible deniability by saying, no, we're not, we don't have any. Uh, remote viewing unit that we're paying these people to do stuff like that because technically they're not. They're getting it from contractors. Um, and it's also my understanding that there are now individual remote viewers within various government organizations, such as, say, the Navy SEALs or the Army Rangers. And that makes sense because what military commander would not want somebody at hand who just might possibly uh, be able to tell him what's over the next hill? Is there limitations to what remote viewing can be used for? I mean, 
people who have psychic abilities, for example, and um, I'm more skeptical of psychic abilities than I am of remote viewing, but people who have psychic abilities claim that they can, you know, look into the future, tell you what's going to happen, but for some reason they can't predict lottery numbers or, or sports <laughs> scores. Well, that's the big stumbling block. That's uh, Lynn Buchanan was the training officer for the remote viewing unit, and uh, um, I've become pretty good friends with him. He's really a fine fellow, and he's teaching remote viewing now out in New Mexico. And he laughs and says, yeah, people are always coming to him saying, well, give me the winning lottery number. And he tells them, well, if I could get the winning lottery number, why would I give it to you? Exactly, yeah. <laughs> but here's the problem, guys. It has to do with the uh, reality of numbers. Numbers are a human construction, okay? In other words, if you hold an orange in your left hand and an orange in your right hand, that's the reality. Okay, it's it's a it's an artificial construction to say I have two oranges. Do you understand what I'm saying? I see. So as a result, they can go, for instance, into the future. They can look around, see what people are wearing, seeing what's happening on the street. They can even go up to the news rack and see the newspapers, and in some instances, they can actually read the headlines. But when they try to read the date, or when they try to find lottery numbers, or try to find stock exchange numbers, they, it, you just can't do it because numbers are just a, a human artificial construction. And, and, and thing, I know that may sound like a cop-out, but apparently that's the way it works. But then that leads to other interesting thoughts, such as they tell me when they go into the past, the past seems pretty solid you know, because it's already happened. When they go into the future, the farther into the future they go, the murkier, the more hazy the viewing becomes, and that apparently is because the future hasn't completely formed yet, which is pretty interesting because that means if the future has not formed, if it's not etched in stone, then we have the ability to change the future by changing our actions right now. Absolutely. I was going to say that the, the, just the process of free will would make it so that it, it can't be finite in the future. So even something like lottery numbers, what numbers are selected are going to be uh, subject to the simplest little change in the way things are calculated. Right, right. You know, it's a, you get one molecule that strays off and everything shifts a little bit, and, you, and it's going to be different. The butterfly effect. It, the butterfly effect. You've got it. Now, That's it. Uh, so uh, it's really interesting, and yet there are positive ways of using remote viewing. For example, uh, one of the remote viewers uh, got a contract with a company, one of these private companies is trying to go into space, and they were asking him, what is the most cost-effective method of uh, building a base on the moon? So after the remote viewing, they went back and they said, well, you can build a base on the moon for probably less than $100. And they went, what? And they said, well... You get one of these craters, deep crater, and you cover it over with uh, sheet plastic, and you pump 16 psi air in there, and you've got you've got you can live and and survive in there. There's there's your base. And he said, and uh, if by some chance you get hit by a meteorite, it pokes a hole in it. They won't rip the whole thing apart. They'll just punch a hole, and you go up there and put some duct tape over it. You're back in business. So with a little sheet plastic and some duct tape. You can have a base on the moon. Well, I'll admit it. When I, before I read the book, uh, I was skeptical of the idea of remote viewing, and uh, I 
I might not have even read this book if it hadn't had your name attached to it, Jim. Well, so, thank you very much. <laughs> and again, let me reiterate, I was the most skeptical one of all. In fact, it took me forever to figure out this idea of coordinate numbers. Because, see, if, I'm at, if I want you to remote view the Eiffel Tower, I can't tell you I want you to go look at the Eiffel Tower because you've seen pictures of it in mm -hmm. films or you may have even been there. So you can close your eyes and get a perfect picture of the Eiffel Tower. That's not remote viewing, okay? So they had to figure out a way to uh, be able to tell you to go look at the Eiffel Tower without telling you it's the Eiffel Tower. And they came up with what they call coordinate numbers. And these numbers are meaningless, basically, except that whoever's assigning the target assigns this number to that target. And this gets really, really kind of freaky because apparently what happens is when you have a thought and you think about this number uh, equals looking at the Eiffel Tower, that thought is an energy form, and it goes up on the universal energy grid, and anyone who is sensitive enough uh, can pick up on it, and then once they pick up on this thought form, they, it, they're instantly di uh, directed to the Eiffel Tower. So in remote viewing, if you are on your target and you're doing the methodology correctly, you will be directed straight to the Eiffel Tower. It's an amazing process, and you can see why that people high in politics and government, they don't want us to know that we all have this capability because... Knowledge is power, and they don't want to give power to the average guy, and yet anyone who is particularly someone who may already have uh, a little bit of psychic ability, or even people that don't, you can train and practice at it enough to where uh, you can do it. And they found this out in all of this experimentation. Everybody they tried had the ability to do it. And Well, what... And what you were saying with the coordinates, that's what really amazed me by the way that you present the information is you chronicle how, you know, the different, whether it was the CIA or the government, uh, the uh, military, whoever was in charge of the project at the time, went through so many steps to prove that it could be done and that it wasn't, you know, leaving nothing to chance. So right. by the time I was done reading it, I'm convinced. And one of the things that fascinated me was the idea of, a, that these remote viewers could work together and concentrate on one target together and sort of see versions of each other at the target point. Right. And, and probably my favorite story in the book uh, involved uh, when they were remotely viewing the... Uh, I don't want to give too much away for those who are going to read it, but when they were remotely viewing, they found that there was somebody else looking back. Right. And then they played a little trick uh, using a, a mask to, <laughs> to try and get back at them. Right. Yeah, that was back during the Reagan era. And I'm sure everybody's seen these Halloween masks that look like Ronald Reagan. So once they realized that the uh, Soviets had their own version of the remote viewers, they called them extra sensors, and that they were looking back at them. So uh, uh, on a few occasions, they'd go do the remote viewing and put on a Ronald Reagan mask, and <laughs> figuring that they would just freak out the opposition and say, holy cow, the American president's looking back at me. <laughs> uh, that just it just cracked me up. And uh, by that point, from all the, you know, the case that you made for remote viewing, by that point, I didn't, e I didn't even question the fact that, the, you know, that it was a possibility at that point. Well, you, you, I'm glad you said that because that was, uh, in, by reading my book, you went through the same process I did. I started off saying, I don't see how this could work. 
And then, uh, but the more I studied, the more I talked to the people doing it, the more I looked at the scientific uh, papers and, and uh, experiments, uh, you know, uh, eventually you just like, yeah, okay, <laughs> it works. And, of course, in my case, before it was all over, I had satisfied myself to the fact that it worked because I did it myself. Um, the very first time I tried to remote view, I just sat quietly in a chair, tried to clear my mind, and I tried to get a picture of a uh, office building that I was getting ready to go visit, never been there before. I said, I want to know what it looks like, and I got a very clear picture of a strip shopping center type, uh, one story uh, type business building. and I saw the floor plan very clearly, and I, so I sketched all this up. And when I flew out to uh, New Mexico, I find out that the office that I thought I was going to was actually some guy's ranch-style home. So I thought, well, I'm not any good with this. But then about a year later, I went back out there, and they had kept my drawings, and they handed them back to me and said, here, good job. And they took me to an office building that had just been built, and uh, they had leased an office space in there. And when I drove up and looked at it, it was exactly what I had seen in my remote viewing. And then they handed me the uh, official floor plan, and it was 100% accurate to what I had drawn. So, wow, I, I had taken a look into the future. <laughs> well, definitely not being constrained by time and space. You, you had alluded to it before about remotely viewing UFOs. Right. What uh, is that something that you know the government's trying to keep from us? Is that something oh, yeah. that people in the private sector they, are doing? You know, they they're trying their darndest to try to tell everybody that there's no such thing. And I, I'm not sure. Well, I think one of the reasons why is because they don't want to admit that things are flying through our skies that they don't have any control over. Because then we start questioning why half of the the U.S. budget each year goes to defense. If they can't defend us, why are we paying them all this money? that's one reason but i think the main reason that they don't want us to know about the reality of ufos uh has to do again with the people who actually run this country and i'm not talking about the politicians i'm talking about the people who buy the politicians again wall street the the plutocracy the new world order whatever you want to call them uh the people who own the corporations that are now running this country and they really don't care if you know there's aliens out there what they care about is if you absolutely knew that there were UFOs and aliens out there, then you would know that there is alternative technology out there, and it might endanger their monopolies over energy, transportation, communication, pharmaceuticals, etc. I've always thought that you know if if the government has the supposed you know ability to reverse engineer these propulsion systems that these UFOs have, why are we wasting our time with gas and oil? Exactly. And why are we wasting our time and money with those giant rockets blasting off from Cape Carnaveral uh, if they are able to manipulate energy, uh, manipulate this what they call zero-point energy, and just uh, have developed anti-gravity? But the question is, again, do they, would they want to upset their profit base in oil and gas, or would they want to keep all that technology from us? Exactly. Well, and... It's amazing how much we question different areas of of what these cover-ups could be and how they all basically just end up melting in together as to one big, shh, don't look into that. You're not supposed to know about that. Well, it's just, you know, basically, I mean, uh, we're living in the matrix, okay? Not, Not that we're all physically hooked up to machines, but 
we are all caught in an electromagnetic matrix woven about us by the corporate control mass media. We live and in the they, construct uh, they want us to live in. And they tell us what to think about and how to think about certain things. And you've got to break yourself out of that matrix if you're ever going to uh, achieve true freedom as a free-thinking individual. Hey, Jim. I'm going to let you in on something. People that know me that have been around me for a while already know the story. I I did some remote viewing myself uh, back in the early 90s. I was actually uh, brought in by a group called SciTech. You familiar with them? Right. Uh, I was brought in to actually do remote viewing out with crop circles. And one of the people that I got involved with actually has been a guest of ours on a number of occasions. But uh, I was brought out with uh, a guy by the name of Dan Smith and Paul Von Ward. Yes. You familiar with Dan Smith? And Paul Von Ward, both of uh, SciTech. Well, uh huh. Uh, you know where I'm going with that, don't you? Yeah. Okay. Uh, like I said, I got involved with them, unfortunately, back in the early '90s, and then figured out who I was dealing with after the fact. But uh, yeah, I can say firsthand. Yeah, they are definitely interested in that type of technology. Oh, of course, of course. And so is people, because see, once uh, once the CIA uh, got in a little bit of trouble there in the mid '70s with the Church Committee, which I've already mentioned, when it started coming about about their assassination plots and drug running and everything else. And so the CIA decided to divest themselves of any program that might give them a problem, so they uh, were going to dump the remote viewing program. And the U.S. Army picked it up and put it under their intelligence and security command, continued the experimentations, and continued the use. And that's when they actually created a unit of remote viewers, which I call the Spies. And uh, that continued on up into the 90s, and then when they uh, dropped it from the Army, it was picked up by other even more secret groups like the Defense uh, Intelligence Agency and the, and the NSA. All right, well, we are just about out of time, Jim, I'm sorry to say. You're going to have to come back and join us again real soon because this has just been fascinating. Well, I'm, I'm just so thrilled to be able to talk to someone who uh, uh, I'm not... I, I'm not saying you agree with me. You don't have to agree with me, but at least you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> well, I do agree with you. I have to say, at least on the idea of there's there's always more to the story than what we're being told, and I'm glad people such as yourself are, are digging for the truth. If you want to order Jim's book, uh, Psy Spies, The True Story of America's Psychic Warfare Program, or any of his books, you can go to his website, jimmars.com. That's uh, Mars with two R's. It's linked up to the blog at spookysouthcoast.com. You can order his books there. He has, uh, you know, like a blog there where he where he updates and and shares his thoughts on different things. And definitely check it out. We hope to have him back again in the future. And uh, definitely check out Psy Spies. And if you do have any remote viewing experiences after you read it and after you look more into it, let us know. We'd love to hear about it. Spooky Crew at SpookySouthCoast.com. We uh, we thank you, Jim, for joining us tonight. And uh, hopefully, uh, we will talk to you. Thank you so much. This has really been interesting. All right. Good night. Take care. And now next week we will uh, try and pursue that story about the Mini Franks box a little bit more as well as talk about hopefully the local hauntings next week. And uh, we'll be back as far as we know through all of December. We'll find out uh, when the NFL schedule is a little bit closer. So stay tuned to SpookySouthCoast.com for more information. For Matt Costa, for Matt Moniz, I'm Tim Weisberg. We want you all to stay spectacular. 
Rest assured, listener, that my time here has not been easy, and what you have just heard was not fiction. Although, in many a desperate moment, I most certainly wish it had been. It's over for now, it seems. Or at least, until yesterday begins again. Tomorrow, 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 tomorrow. Look, I know the supernatural is something that isn't supposed to happen, but it does happen.